You're listening to Defence Research, a podcast on enhancing defence capability through groundbreaking research. Good day, and welcome to Defence Research, a podcast that explores defence research as an instrument of national power here in Australia. And today I'm really pleased to have with me Professor Michelle Simmons. Michelle is a quantum physicist and a Scientia professor at the University of New South Wales. She has twice been a Federation Fellow and is a a Laureate Fellow of the Australian Research Council. Michelle is the Director of the Centre of Excellence for Quantum Computation and Communication Technology, which is headquartered at UNSW. And she is the founder and CEO of Australia's first quantum computing company, Silicon Quantum Computing. In 2018, Michelle was named Australian of the Year. Michelle, thanks for coming on the show. It's a pleasure. Lovely to talk to you, Paul. Um, Look, um, I I must admit uh, that that for for this interview, I've been both really looking forward to it and kind of dreading it because I'm looking forward to it because you are a global leader in a uh, emerging technology that has potential to transform our way of life uh, around the world. But I've also been kind of dreading it because, you know, I'm, a, I'm an artsman and, and quantum <laughs> physics is not something that I, uh, I, sp- I spend a lot of time um, t- talking about or, or thinking about. And, you know, to, par- to paraphrase Einstein, you know, you, you kind of lead a, a, a spooky world where in your lab where subatomic particles can exist in two places at once and, and they can interact instantly with one another over vast, you know, subatomic distances. So... Before we do a deeper dive on you and your work, can can you give us a bit of a refresher on quantum phys- physics? Yeah, sure. Look, it's um, it's a it's a fascinating world to be in, but really, it's um, the way that the world behaves at the very smallest length scales, so either individual atoms or photons of light, and and the world does behave differently down there because quantum physics dominates. And a, a very simple explanation I, that I like to use is if you take a tennis ball and you throw it at a wall. It will bounce off and come back at you in the classical world. But if you were to make that tennis ball very small, it behaves more like a wave. And then there's a finite probability that if the wall is thin, it will tunnel through the other side. And so for you know for devices in particular in the in the world of electronics and computing, we've got to figure out what does that mean as we make devices smaller. When do those quantum effects come into play? And probably for a few decades, people were very worried that it would you know, kill classical computing as as in, in increase in power every year, that it would stop because of these quantum effects. Whereas in reality, you know, back in the probably in the 80s and sometime before, people said, actually, you could take those quantum properties and you could actually make computers that actually use those quantum properties to take us to the next level of computing. Um, and that's, you know, so it's predicted that we'll be able to do calculations real time that would otherwise take thousands of years if we can harness the world at that length scale. So there's a big race all over the world to try and see, can we build computers at those length scales and can we use those quantum properties? And I guess the two properties there are superposition and entanglement. There's the two that we really like to use in order to get that kind of what we call exponential speed up in computational power. Thank you. Um, so, so you mentioned a race, and, and I know you were recently in, in Switzerland at a, a quantum-themed yes. conference or, or gathering. Yes. Uh, tell me about that global race. Uh, are, are you... Um, are you leading in that race? Are you? Are you? Yeah. Look, I, I think it's it's well known globally that Australia is right at the forefront of that race um, in quantum computing, and particularly in silicon, because we've been working at it for twenty years. Um, so the meeting we were at had lots of different materials, but a lot of people now moving into the silicon field because we've shown what a fantastic material it is. 
Um, so it's exciting really to be at the forefront of that. And I think, you know, for Australia, you know, it's ours to lose. We've really been in there since the beginning, have technologies that are unique globally, have expertise across all levels of, of the computational stack from the hardware through to the software and the algorithms. And so really it's hugely exciting for Australia to, you know, to take that lead and make, make economic value and, and things that are good for Australia as a consequence. Yeah, that is really exciting, especially when we look at the uh, strategic need in Australia to, to develop sovereign uh, and competitive global manufacturing capacity. Yeah. Um, so we're really uh, happy to have you here in Australia. It's funny for me to say that as a Canadian, but you know, it's a great country to live in. Um, and, yeah. and so tell us about how, what drew you to quantum physics as a, as a young uh, girl, a young woman in, in Britain. And yeah. tell us about your journey that led to you coming to Australia and, and being here at UNSW. Yeah, look, so, so in, my, um, in my PhD, I was making solar cells. I'm trying to capture light um, at, um, at different wavelengths from the sun. And I guess in that, I was very passionate about looking at different materials and trying to make devices that were useful for the world. And so obviously solar cells are something that, that hit that naturally. Um, but I realized very early on that, you know, when we make a solar cell, typically we only capture one wavelength of light and yet the sun has many wavelengths. And so we were designing cells that were, that had, you know, quantum properties of different wavelengths that we were trying to capture. So quantum worlds of different um, widths. And I suddenly realized, gosh, quantum physics is actually very useful. Um, at that time, the Cavendish opened up down in Cambridge, had a position which was really in the fundamentals of quantum physics. So for me, I went from device making um, in kind of application space to very fundamental device making and really trying to figure out how do you make the most perfect devices, the highest quality transistors in the Cavendish. And then you see those quantum effects beautifully in mm. clean systems. And it was there that quantum computing started to become an experimental field. And there was a researcher, Bruce Kane, who I actually worked with when he was at Bell Labs and when I was at the Cavendish, who was looking at, you know, if you want to make a quantum computer, what's the best way to make it? And what I thought was fantastic about that was at the Cavendish, we were trying to make devices reproducible in the quantum regime, and it was really hard using conventional techniques. And he had this idea, if you make it with atoms, you use the natural behavior of atoms, and then you get the cleanest system with the best qualities. I remember seeing that idea and thinking, wow, that is, you know, in life there are just some of these ideas that are simple and elegant that kind of transform the way the world is at that time. And I thought that's that's the kind of thing that I have expertise I can add to. Um, he was in Australia at the time. I, I had been to Australia, I had family here. I'd visited, I knew it was a great country. Um, and I thought, wow, it's a place I want to go to. And, you know, I, I haven't regretted it. It's been fantastic ever since I've been here. And it's that kind of mixture for me of academic freedom but ambition and competitiveness and collaborativeness all at the same time, which I think is quite unique in Australia. That's great. I, I like how you referred to um, something that so many people consider almost um, unknowable, as simple and elegant. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, <laughs> and it's fascinating when people like you are, are attracted to something so complex, but but see that simplicity yeah. and recognize that elegance, and then and then ride that forward yes. in, in in your in your work and with your teams. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's honestly, it's something that has guided me ever since because it is a complex thing to build a quantum computer and mm. you want to get rid of as much complexity as possible to keep it simple and elegant because yeah. I think, honestly, that's the way that you will succeed. So it's right. at the core of what we do, I guess. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Okay, so let, let's get down to, to business. Um, yeah. If you come to UNSW, there's a building um, with, with a great sign above the door that, that you know very well and it says the Australia Research Council uh, Centre for Excellence for Quantum Computation and Communications Technology. and we all know that as the CQC2T. So tell us, what, what have you and your team at the CQC2T been 
working on over the past 20 years or so? Yeah, so really when we started out, it was to take the idea of building a quantum computer out of atoms and to try and realize that. But at the same time, we also had a group working in optics, so to take single photons of light and try and build quantum computers out of photons, as well as spins in semiconductors with atoms. And so we had that kind of dual track from the beginning, and then we added to that communications in about 2011. And so we did have, and we still have now, one of the largest groups of quantum information people in the world in one kind of one country working in a national project. Um, so that's been fantastic because it's allowed all kinds of technologies to develop at the ground level. Um, and from that, um, we've looked at each of those technologies evolving into now companies, and that's been very exciting. And so my work in particular has been focusing on you know, building that atom technology with the view that it's um, you know, the highest quality, the fastest speed, and the most manufacturable um, quantum computing system that we can see out there. So that's really what Bruce's original idea was. And we've literally taken it from an idea which a lot of people thought was kind of a schematic diagram, like a cartoon, and we've realized it. So we've you know, been able to put single atoms in place and encode information on single electrons on single atoms, which uh, back when we put the idea out, people thought was just not possible, and it certainly wasn't 20 years ago. And so we've pioneered this whole manufacturing technology that is globally unique, and it allows us to make whole processes here in Australia. Um, and so that's pretty exciting because, you know, amongst the way, one of the key things about building a scalable quantum computer is you have to be able to manufacture it and keep the quality. And so that's that simplicity and elegance of the system, you know, having single atoms. We only use two atoms, silicon and phosphorus. We encode the information on the electron spins on the phosphorus atom. Um, so it's nice and simple and elegant and it's manufacturable and it's something you can do here in the Australian context. So for me, it's just got everything from the fundamentals through to the actual ap applicability. Um, and now we're looking at building algorithms and on the, on the systems that we've built, so actually running them directly. Extraordinary. It, it, it sounds just amazing to, 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 to think about encoding single atoms and single electrons. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and obviously there's a, a huge complexity to doing that. Yeah. So, so if I was to walk into your centre, um, you know, what would what would I see? What, what oh, you, 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 you folks in, in white coats uh, yeah, working with with uh, microscopes, <laughs> or do you, do you have big big pieces you, of you kit? Have to, you have to come down. So yeah, so so definitely, we've got um, we've got three different um, experimental platforms that we rely on to make the actual um, computer chips directly. Um, one of those is obviously a clean room where you wear the white, the kind of the white bunny suits, and it's you know, all the air's filtered, and there's lots of different tools in there. It's about a 20-step process in there to take a chip through. Uh, but then in addition to that, so quite a lot of universities would have that, but in addition to that, we built an atom-scale fabrication lab, which is quite unique to us, where we've got ultra-high vacuum systems, so they kind of look like um, small spaceships, and one way to look at it, other people say they look like milking machines, it depends on your perspective, um, but they, they're ultra-high vacuum so that we get rid of all the air inside there, and that's where we have our microscopes that allow us to manipulate atoms and then grow crystals over them. And so, and the idea is that, you know, we have those two labs next to each other so that you can literally put your atoms in place in the chip, take that chip, when if you look at it, you can't see where the atoms are because they're smaller than the, the human eye can see, then take them through with all these little markers that we've made from the clean room on the chip in the beginning so we know where to find the device, back to the clean room to make contact to the device. And then you go to our third kind of lab, which is where you measure that, which is the cryogenic lab, um, where you have these things called dilution fridges, which are quite big, about the size of a human being, um, and then a whole bunch of classical electronics that we now design and build in-house in the company to control the information on and off that quantum chip, which is sitting at very low temperatures. And so it's a huge number of labs, huge amount of expertise. 
Um, and I guess what we realized at the beginning was to be successful in building a processor, you need to co-locate all of those. So you start with your chip and you have control of the manufacturing and control of the measurement and that every member of the team can see each other member of the team and they know what's happening in the actual fabrication of the chip and the measurement of the chip as it comes through. Um, and then since that time with the company, we've actually built, we call it a stack. We've built up through that. So we've brought in people that make the classical control electronics and then people that program that and then the algorithm people that sit on top of that. So it's called a full stack team. And it's quite exciting, honestly, so to have all of that in one location where they can all feel part of building a whole quantum computer. It's quite so, exciting. That's fantastic. So tell me about your team. How, how many folks, and are they you know, lots of Australians, or do you have folks from around the world? No, so it's very mixed. So we've now got um, eight team leads. So recognizing that there are you know, pretty much eight different layers of the stack, we've created eight different team leads over the last two or three years. Some of those people have actually been working with me for 10 years. That's so a long time, and uh, we get on incredibly well. So it's like a group of people that... You know, it's we call it all in the trenches together. Um, underneath each of those team leads is about five or seven people, and so the, so we've kind of recognised that if you grow too quickly, that's very hard to keep everyone communicating. Um, but each team has to have a, a depth in it. Um, so each of the team leads has been kind of handpicked um, with their the depth of expertise, but also their ability to get on with others and to lead. So it's been quite exciting, not just in the technology, but actually building that team around the technology. Um, and then all, all based on the idea that we manufacture as fast as possible in-house to try and develop a processor with an end user in mind. So we've been engaging with end users and looking at what problems they have and then mapping it to our hardware. Good. So, so you mentioned the company. Some of our listeners may not be aware at how um, entrepreneurial um, researchers like you can be and, and how um, effective um, universities can be in spinning off companies, commercializing IP and, and generating um, you know, g global good um, th through from, from discovery right through to scaled up uh, manufacturing. So, so five years ago, you founded Silicon uh, Quantum Computing, or SQC, yeah. um, with some pretty impressive equity backing, I must say, from uh, uh, the, the Australian uh, and New South Wales governments, uh, Telstra, the Commonwealth Bank, uh, the university itself. Yeah. Um, so, so what is, what is SQC's mission statement, Michelle, or, or your vision, and, and are you happy with the progress that you and your team are making? Yeah, look, so I'm, I'm number one, delighted with where it's going, but I think the, the, the vision really is to build um, a useful, practical quantum computer here in Australia in silicon using atoms. Um, I, I guess we've looked around the different quantum computers that are available at the moment, and one of the key issues there is the quality is not at the level yet where we can perform these large-scale algorithms that are useful commercially. Um, and then it comes down to that fact, can you manufacture and keep the quality as you manufacture at scale? And so that's really kind of the core of what we decided was choose a system silicon, choose a you know, choose atoms because they have the high quality. Um, and then try and build the system here in Australia, recognizing that, you know, a lot of people think you've got to be a, a big company like Microsoft or Google or IBM to build a quantum computer. But actually, if you control the manufacturing process, you can actually build it here in Australia. And so that's it's, it's, it's been kind of part of our mission um, to look at what's the best way to build it, then see what you need, and then actually build the teams around it. Um, and given that we've got that leadership globally in the technology, it's really, like I said, it's ours to lose. If we don't accelerate and push it to the end goal, um, then you know, we're giving something up that Australia can lead in. Right on. It's ours to lose, but certainly ours to win as well. Absolutely. And that's the focus. That's I, my plan. <laughs> yeah, I can see that's your passion. So um, you know, what you're describing here, I think, is it, you know it's massive. Uh, um, I think we all know it's massive. And assuming you will achieve your goal of, of, of manufacturing high-value you know, quantum computing processors at scale yeah. for, for the global market. What do you think 
this could mean economically for Australia in terms of uh, you know, a sovereign manufacturing capability. And more important, you know, what changes could this bring to the global community? You know, for instance, I've heard you speak before about the potential for quantum computing to lead to the discovery of new medicines. Yeah. Look, I think um, I think it's fair to say at the moment that um, yeah, when quantum computing started, there were a couple of very powerful algorithms. There was the code breaking and the and the fast database searching. <clears throat> Excuse me. And they, they're such um, powerful algorithms that they really set the field off. And uh, you know, we've been funded now by U.S. Defense since 1999, based I think on just those two algorithms. Um, but then, as time has evolved, you know, they're now probably about 70 different algorithms. And the, and the way I look at that field, and, and people are trying to you know, make computers that would realize those algorithms as soon as possible. And just to give you a sense of why it's so powerful, you know, there's two ways to look at problems. One is the size of a problem, and one is the complexity of a problem. And most people in the classical computing world will look at problems that are you know, quite easy, like a calculator can do, or they can be things that might be um, complex but still quite small, such as airline scheduling. Um, but once you get to problems that are both complex and large, that's where a quantum computer comes in. And it's the kind of thing where, you know, the, the, the problems that people don't tend to use in their everyday life. So that's why it's difficult to describe why they're useful for the world. Um, but there are problems such as, you know, in the long term, people are talking about kind of logistics problems, how to minimize airline fuel costs across the world, or how to solve problems such as building catalysts for making fertilizer more efficient. Uh, or, you know, code breaking is one. So the, the code breaking one is something that a lot of people are studying in quite detail. But if you take a classical computer and you take a, a 10,000 bit number and try and find out what, you know, how to decode that, it would take, you know, longer than the lifetime of the universe with a classical computer. But it, it takes about, you know, an hour with, the, with a quantum computer. And so there are these problems that you know, people have resolved that if we can build one, those are the kind of things we could use. But then it hits pretty much every industry. So drug design is something uh, that people have looked at. It's, you know, a 40 to $80 billion market if you can get a quantum computer to solve problems for drug design. And that's really because, you know, to, to, design, to take a drug through trials costs billions of dollars already um, and takes about a decade. So if you could get a quantum computer that could solve that much more efficiently, then suddenly you start to hit, you know, lots of industries where people will see it in their everyday life. And so for me, there's just huge numbers of industries. BCG, Boston Consultancy Group, have got reports about all the different industries that will hit. And it goes from logistics to mining to medicine, you know, defense. It's, it's everywhere. And so for me, it's a question of finding our end users, looking at the problems that they have now, looking at the computers that we can build now, which is still relatively small scale, and then trying to map out how we build bigger and bigger computers to start to solve those problems. And it's really a journey that we want to go on with the end users. How do you bring the rest of the world along with you? I mean, we're talking about a huge step change in, in um, enabling technology that, you know, with a really disruptive and, and positive, positively transformational yeah. effect. Uh, how do we um, educate, um, you know, non-quantum um, uh, physicists like the vast majority of us and, and, and bring us all along on this journey so that we can be ready for and anticipate how these changes may affect our lives? Look, it's a, it's a great question. I think because I've been in the field for a long time, I, I did start at the beginning doing a lot of educational things, giving a lot of public lectures. Um, and so I think people get excited by the potential and the possibility. Um, but as I've now built the company, I've realized that the best way to get people on the journey is to build them, <laughs> is to make them and to solve problems that are useful for them. Right. Um, because then people will start to see what it's going to be used for. And so for me, I've kind of crossed that boundary of the theoretically what's possible world um, into let's make it 
practical and real. Um, and then really, like I say, working with companies, so with the Telstra and with the bank, we've been identifying what are the problems that they have and then showing them, you know, this is where the field is realistically now. This is the problem that you have. There's a gap between them and this is the journey to get to where you want to go. Right. And I think that that's really where, you know, our responsibility is now is to make those things real. So let's drill down a bit in, into defense, Michelle, because that's yeah. what brought you and I together in the first place is talking yes. about how um, your technologies could be applied to um, supporting you know, sovereign defense here in Australia and, and with like-minded partners and allies around the world. Yeah. Um, you know, people talk about how quantum you know, can transform the joint operating domain from, from seabed to space. And we know that potential adversaries are also driving pretty hard yeah. in, in developing these capabilities. Um, so we talk about quantum sensing, quantum encryption, which you've, which you've mentioned, uh, quantum precision navigation and timing, quantum materials, computing, obviously. Um, I know you're not a military expert, but um, as you mentioned, you, you've been the recipient of some pretty significant uh, uh, defense grant funding uh, over the years. And so do, do you have views on, on the potential impact uh, that your work could have on um, military capability. Yeah, look, I I feel, I mean, honestly, I feel this tremendous responsibility part of setting up the company because I felt that we had a technology that was going to be very useful for the world um, if we could build the quantum computer. And and in defense, obviously, it's strategic. It's very strategic. And I think um, the bottom line is anyone that has a computer that can solve problems faster and more efficiently than classical, and it's a step change in fastness. It's something that's real-time that otherwise just could not be done in your lifetime. That's a major game-changer for defense. And so I've always felt... Uh, like I said, this responsibility to make them aware of the technology as it's happening because I don't want them to miss out on it on it coming on. Um, but so, you know, I've looked at um, over the over the time that quantum computing algorithms have evolved, I've looked at where it's likely to hit defense. And it, it literally, it goes from, you know, from materials design, so whether it's batteries or, you know, materials for stealth aircraft, um, high temperature superconductors, there's a materials design where quantum computing can start to solve problems. And, and with us at the moment, that's probably the thing that we've started refocusing down on. Um, that and machine learning are the two key areas we're looking at at the moment. And, and the reason for that is we've realized that we've got a competitive edge in how we can um, simulate materials that allow us to design new materials. And we've got, had this fantastic result this year where we've been able to simulate a polyacetylene molecule. Um, from that, we know that we can go to much more complicated molecules, including drugs eventually. Um, but along those lines, there'll be some of the materials like high, high temperature superconductors we think that we'll be able to solve some of those uh, problems that classical computers can't solve. Um, but then it goes into, you know, logistics. And um, so, you know, how do you get your supply chains there? How do you make sure that you can get mission planning done very nicely? That's another area that we, we see that's going to be quite important. There's the code breaking and the fast database searching. But then there's also um, machine learning and AI and that and looking for pattern recognition. And that's something that we've locked onto recently. We've had a project with the Army, with the Australian Army, um, looking at applying quantum computing to pattern recognitions to see if we can identify things much faster with a quantum solution rather than a classical. And our first indications are that you can. So we're very excited about that. Um, but that, again, that has a huge impact for defense in terms of, you know, lots of signals across the electromagnetic spectrum. How do you identify, you know, threats amongst those signals? How do you do, you know, facial recognition of, of crowds, you know, and, right. and patterns of behaviors of right. leaders, for example? So there's all those kind of areas where I think quantum computing will have a, have a role to play. Yeah. It, it's, it's a bit eye-watering. You, you know, when you talk about quantum, um, you know, sort of teaming with AI and, and machine learning, 
military strategists are talking a lot about the human um, uh, sort of over the loop, where where the, um, the the rate at which technology is allowing mass amounts of data to be distilled and um, uh, and and potential threats identified. Yeah. Uh, the appropriate sensor and and perhaps weapon system um, applied, and the rate at which an adversary might be um, doing the same thing Absolutely. against our own forces is, is potentially driving us to a, a place where the human commander is actually um, it is beyond his or her cognitive capacity yeah. to be tracking the rate at which. The, the the battle space is unfolding. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? No, I mean, I, it's, that's exactly, I guess, what I'm seeing. So, you know, one of the um, one of the insights I had um, when looking at all the different algorithms for defence was to try and imagine it from the view of if it was an adversary, what would they do if they had it? And that was a real eye-opener for me because we always, you know, as scientists, when we look at what are the applications of our technology, we're always nervous about overstating it. And, you know, there are a lot of people out there that say you can solve all these problems and, you know, and then, you know, typically scientists like to say, oh, yes, but there's this and the other. But then if you imagine that your adversary's got it and you think, what could they do? And you see it from that lens, then you start to see exactly the threat that quantum computing can could give. And I think exactly the idea that, you know, you can you can be faster, smarter, and unpredictable if you have this technology, and you know that's the kind of thing you would not want your adversary to have over here. Right. And so for that reason, I do think it's a you know it's a transformational technology that we should get behind because let's face it, other countries are. Yeah, I agree, hundred um, percent. So along that line, Defense Trailblazer. Yes. So you're obviously familiar with the program because you've uh, yeah. y- you've been. Um, enthusiastically supportive right from the get-go and you've you've brought sqc into the fold and for our listeners defense trailblazer is that a program where unsw and uni adelaide have come together funded by the department of education to drive acceleration and greater integration between uh, university researchers like you yeah. um uh and industry um, all um nested in this strategic priority pull through of, of, of the government around defense capabilities yeah so um one of the the key research themes, as you know, Michelle, is, is quantum technologies. Um, t- t- tell me about what attracted you to Defense Trailblazer and, and what are you hoping to uh, see come out of it over the next four years or, or more? Uh, look, I think, so one of the things that attracted me um, primarily was that was we get a lot of funding from US Defense and I felt that there was an imbalance with our funding or our engagement with Australian Defense. <clears throat> so f- fundamentally for me, it's making them aware of the technology and working with them on issues that they have across those different application spectrums. That's that's really what I want to, um, like with the Army, identifying problems that Defence already has and then trying to show how quantum computing can help solve a solution. Um, I also think in amongst that is building the supply train in Australia, making sure that we have all the different parts that we, um, as a nation, have all the technology we need to be successful in this field. Um, so I think for us at the moment, we lead the field and it's kind of... Um, you know, up for us as a nation to make sure that we get the best of it for defence forces as well as economically. So that's really why I'm in Trailblazer. Great, thank you. That's kind of why I'm in it too. So, <laughs> um, so look, my final question for you, Michelle, has to do with with women in in STEM. Um, I think it's just fantastic, and I'm sure you do too, that the the two chief defence scientists or the three chief defence scientists of the of the three AUKUS nations yeah. are all really impressive women yeah, uh, yeah. leaders in, in science and. Um, you know, you you too obviously are an extraordinary role model for young girls and 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 women, but also for young boys and and young men. And um, I, I I'd be interested in your thoughts. Uh, you know, what what is your 
assessment of what's happening here in Australia in terms of attracting women into science. Are you are you happy with the with where we are? Are you happy with how we're trending? Yeah, look, it's uh, to be honest, when the, the year I was Australian of the year, I kind of made it one of the focuses of the year um, to bring females in. And I have to say, I've been delighted. We've had uh, chief scientists, chief defence scientists. We've had now ministers, uh, prime ministers. So, so females are getting into those leadership positions, you know, fully really for the first time in a lot of cases. And I think it's great because having those role models out there for young females to see is fantastic. And I've certainly identified in my conversations in that year that that's one of the things they want to see. So they want to see, um, you know, what happens if I go into these fields? Where does it lead me? Um, I think it was a very interesting year for me because at the beginning my goal was to bring more females in science and to see if I could notch the dial. Um, and then I realised, you know, a lot of the views that I had were views of my generation and they very quickly told me that, you know, they said... We have lots of opportunities now coming through to get into science. You know, there's no barriers to us. Um, so, you know, don't try and push us into it. We've got to come into it because we want to. And that was good because I, you know, at that point, they, we've put a lot of emphasis to bring them through, but they've actually got to want to come through. And so that year I really pivoted from going from, yes, more senior high schools and undergraduates and trying to bring them through to going down to primary schools and realising that one of the things that's probably good is for them just to see what we do. And so we opened up our labs, uh, you know, bringing in 200 children at a time, actually, in one day. Fantastic. Um, primary and secondary, so they could see what we do, see exactly all those bits of equipment we discussed at the beginning. Um, and I know that that does have an impact, because over we've been doing that for a number of years, but we've really set out um, in a campaign to do it since since 2018. Um, but I now, you know, not me, but others as well, I start to see the females come through that have been to those events. And it has made them realise, gosh, there's that opportunity. Um, we now see them come through undergraduate and postgraduate um, degrees. And so I think that's that's where I feel I can have the most change with females, as well as mentoring them as they come through, which, you know, I, I absolutely love mentoring young females and making them successful and making them aware that the opportunity is just endless, really. So right now it's a good time. I think we'd like to have more. I don't know why we can't get more, but that, I think getting, in, getting at that younger age group is where we're going to have the biggest impact going forwards. I think it's fantastic that you bring uh, you know, students, young students, into the lab, boys a, and girls. It's a lot of fun. I have to say, yeah. it's my favourite day of the year because they are completely open. Yeah. You know, at that age, they just see everything and they want to know all these questions. Yeah, and it's by the end of the day, they say, "Oh, I want to become a, I want to become that." And before they would, you know, they didn't know what they wanted to be, but I want to be a scientist. You know, and it, I don't know if it stays or not, but it's just having the joy of sharing with them is quite fantastic. Have you, um, have you? Had any kids that you met maybe you know fifteen years ago come back yeah. to you as PhD students? Yeah, 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 oh, okay. yeah, yeah. So I've seen them come through. It's, it's, I guess I've always felt that um, you know desire to bring young people through. I love teaching and and seeing them come through. And then you know sometimes I actually in Switzerland I met a girl in Switzerland who said to me, "Oh, you know I'm only here because I saw you talk five years ago at some event." And so uh, and she's young, bright, enthusiastic, and it just you know. So I just felt, you know, it feels terrific when you see them come through. And I said to her, well, you know, give me your name. I'm going to watch you forever more and I'm going to mentor you. So wherever you go now, I'm on your side. So, and that's, you know, it's a great feeling. Well, she's a pretty fortunate uh, young academic oh, to, to have someone like you uh, commit to her. All by herself. She's pretty amazing, I can tell you. She's, uh, she's one, to, one to watch. I think she's going to do great things. Is she here in Australia? She's Australian, yeah. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. More role models. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And she's, uh, yeah, just, just talking to her, she's going to be great. Great. Well, just talking to you, Michelle, is great. Uh, this has been a, a great conversation, and uh, y your, your passion for, for what you do really shines through. Um, your humility, um, as well as a, 
as such a well-known um, and accomplished academic is, is inspiring as well. And um, look, I, I wish you um, all the success in the world here, um, not just for you personally, but uh, for your team and for Australia, because uh, um, if we can get that global competitive advantage uh, th through scaling up your work, um, Australia will be stronger, but the world will be a better place as well. So uh, what, what, a, what a great uh, journey you're on. So thank you, Michelle. Thanks for coming on uh, onto the podcast. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. And, and thanks uh, also to all of you uh, listening to our award-winning Defence Research Podcast. We'll continue our conversations with our UNSW researchers, as well as defence and industry stakeholders like Professor Simmons, to highlight how academic research supports defence and national security capability development. Thank you all for your time. If you'd like to know more about defence research at UNSW, visit the Defence Research Institute website at dri.unsw.edu.au. You can also follow the Defence Research Institute on LinkedIn and Twitter at UNSWDRI. Opinions expressed by individuals on the show are those of the individual unless stated otherwise. Defence research is copyright of UNSW.